Well, I'd like us briefly to think about your prayer life. Think about what it looks like when you pray. What are some of the words that you use to pray? Or do you pray? How often do you pray? How long do you pray for? And again, maybe in context to our psalm this morning, what kinds of words are you using when you pray? You find yourself in the same pattern of words, saying the same things? Are the words in our prayers sharing with our Heavenly Father what is actually going on in our hearts, that kind of real, that kind of rawness? We have such a privilege in prayer, church, that the God of the universe listens to us, that we can pray and He hears us. Then our, our prayers, since He is God and He knows all things, are our prayers then kind of the no-holds-barred kind of just let your heart speak or are we kind of playing nice? As you can imagine, David doesn't hold anything back in his prayers. He pours out his heart and his soul to God. And we've seen that time and time again in the Psalms. And he actually does this intentionally. Instead of venting and complaining about a situation, maybe in the earshot of others, he goes to his God and he unloads his heart. And David has much to teach us today about the words we use in prayer. So we are again in Psalm 39, continuing along in our summer series in the Psalms. Last week, Psalm 38 told us the tough effects of unresolved sin on us, emotional effects, spiritual effects, physical effects. The psalmist told us that the unresolved sin pushes our friends away and pushes our enemies closer. Ultimately, though, in God's design with unresolved sin, the idea is that we are pushed closer to God himself, whereas we then would receive restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness, all of that. This week, David tells us more about the effects of sin, but they center on two aspects. First, how we are to conduct ourselves around unbelievers and others. And second, how to pray for the effects of sin to end. Look at verse 1 again of Psalm 39. David says, uh, superscript tells us, to the choir master, to Jedithin, a psalm of David, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. Again, our superscript tells us that this is a psalm of David and it is written four or two Jedithan. Jedithan is a Ron Vreeland. He is a worship leader. Every sense of the word, right? He is a worship leader. And we, we actually know about him. We, we've seen him before in the Old Testament. He is uh, in charge of organizing the music in the temple and in the tabernacle. Maybe David wrote these lyrics down and then wanted to give them to Jedithan to write a song. I tried to get Ron to write a song last week from Psalm, 30 out, Psalm 38 about the burning in our loins, but he, he couldn't come up with anything. So. I jest, but we know that the Psalms are Israel's songbook, right? And therefore, they are full of that raw emotion. We saw that last week. Like, my sides are burning. I need to get this relief from this unresolved sin. He's depressed. He's anxious. He's hurting. Think about how different the content of the songs were in the Psalms, because every Psalm was a, a song. 
compared to maybe what we hear on Christian contemporary radio today. You don't really hear many of these, this level of, of, of the depth of the reality, the worship in real life, the nitty gritty of it all. These aren't Jesus is my boyfriend songs. These are songs that are raw and real. And that's what David says in Psalm 38. Psalm 39, they seem to be related. At a minimum, they have a similar theme, the effects of unresolved sin and our response. David first says in verse, then, uh, verse 1, he will guard his ways, specifically that he would not sin with his tongue, meaning that he's very careful not to sin with his words. He's watching his words very, very closely. And he watches his words very closely in a particular context when he's around the wicked, when he's around the unbelievers, enemies of God. Is it easy for us to keep our mouths closed? Sometimes it's not so easy, right? Especially when we're in trial, right? Especially when we have the kind of day that David's having where we don't know the exact situation, but we know Psalm 38 was pretty raw. A lot of guys think it's just more Psalms on the whole event of Bathsheba. And David, in that kind of misery, and that kind of depression, that kind of anxiety, that kind of conviction, that kind of darkness, he says, I have to watch my words when I'm around the wicked. Verse 2 and 3 tells us that it wasn't easy for him either. He was silent, and the more that he was silent, the more he said, it was harder for me to keep quiet. And finally, he said, I just had to speak. My, my distress grew worse. His heart grew hot within him, the text says, which is a very Hebrew way of saying that he got all heated in himself. He got upset. He was getting very, very upset with what was going on. The longer he mused, our text says, or, or pondered, maybe some of us are dwellers. Any dwellers, we like to keep turning these things around in our head time and time again. The more that he did that, he said, the more upset I got. Dwelling in the muck and the mire of his situation, the consequences of his sin. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He has to let it out. He has to speak. But watch, he keeps his integrity. He doesn't vent in front of the enemies. He goes to God in prayer. Our text tells us, then I spoke with my tongue, and what will follow then is a prayer to the Lord, which we're going to pick apart. But before we get there, I want to stop and make this point. Our words reveal our hearts to those around us. Our words reveal our hearts to those around us. Jesus told us this very clearly in the gospel. In the gospel of Luke, for example, Luke 6, 45, Jesus telling us about the origin of our words. They're not just mere words that float out into space. They come from somewhere. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Watch this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our words are connected to our hearts. They're not just words. They, they come from our heart, what we're, what we're feeling. And the words that we use, especially when we're in trial, when we're in adversity, when we're in those situations of darkness, they reveal what's going on in our heart. They reveal what we believe about God. Proverbs has much to say about words. Proverbs 18.7 tells us that a fool's mouth is his ruin, 
and his lips are a snare to his soul. Again, the Apostle Paul maybe brings it home most to our context here about people overhearing. Look at verse uh, Ephesians 4, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such a thing as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace. Watch this to those that hear. Again, words just don't go off into space. Words, people hear words. And are we giving grace with those words? Are we speaking good things out of the good things of our hearts? Or are we speaking sinful words? What do our words represent about what we believe about our God? Especially in trial. Do we believe that He is good? That He is sustaining us? That He is with us? Or are we just complaining about where we are in our lives. David doesn't want unbelievers to hear him complaining about his God, complaining about his current situation in life, and then they would therefore interpret that as complaining about God himself. He doesn't want others to get the wrong idea about God, and so he shuts his mouth until he can get in the presence of his God. I believe it was Abraham Lincoln There is some controversy, of course, as to who said it, but somebody famously said, better to shut your mouth and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Sometimes the best course of action is to be quiet, is to shut our mouths. Like our moms used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all, anything at all. What would our non-Christian friends, our non-Christian family say about the words that we use, especially about our situation in life, whatever that might be. Do they hear contentment or do they hear complaining? Do they hear impurity or do they hear purity? Would a non-Christian get the wrong idea of what a Christian is from your words? This includes our text messages. This includes our social media comments. This includes many other things. Also note the context here again. David is under trial. This is not a happy, sunny Saturday afternoon. David is under trial. Read Psalm 38 again. They're connected. David is still under the conviction for sin. He's hurting. We'll see in a minute again the depths of his depression, of anxiety, of turmoil. And church, even more than when things are going well, we have to watch our words when things are not going well. And David knows that. Our words reveal our hearts. Do our hearts trust God in the midst of this, whatever's happening? But it's in our DNA that we can't remain silent forever, right? Just like David, the longer we hold it in, the more upset we get, and it has to come out. And David teaches us how to do this biblically. Instead of releasing them into the atmosphere or posting them on Facebook or whatever else you wanted to say that might negatively impact others, he goes to God in prayer. Look at verse 4. I'm going to be fighting with this fan for the rest of the sermon, I can tell. But I do like the breeze, so I'll get over it. I'll be good. Okay. Psalm 39. Look at verse 4. This is now he's praying. He says, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths. 
and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, and surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And so David directs his words where? These are not to the wicked. This is to God. This is prayer. He literally holds his breath, shuts his mouth until he can get alone with his God. And then he unloads in this prayer volcano that we're going to see for the next couple of verses. But, but this, this prayer volcano is, is humble. And it's from the right perspective. He has five requests in this prayer. Five imperatives, if you will. Five commands. Five things that he wants God to do for him. And I want us to look at each of these five things. And we see a model of how we're supposed to then approach God in these situations. First one, we just read it. Here's the first thing. Show me how short my life is. It's the first thing David says. Show me how short my life is. Probably not on the top of our prayer lists, right? We wake up and get our coffee and it's like, Lord, remind me I'm going to die someday. But yet... It is a good thing to be in remembrance of the fact that we're not going to live forever. Sometimes we deceive ourselves and we think that we're going to live forever. He says, make me know my end, how many days I have. My life, it's fleeting. Remind me of that. He says, my days are, are like a few hand breaths, the width of a hand, probably a few inches. Compared to what? Compared to eternity. It's nothing. What am I? I'm a mist, I'm a vapor, I'm a breath, I'm a shadow. We go around all our lives, and here's the key. Doing what? What are we doing in this whole thing? David says, what are you going to do with your life? Chase money? That's good. Make a big pile of money. And then when you die, everybody will fight for it. And who knows who's going to get it? So what? That's what you're going to spend your life doing? Chasing money? Not that money's wrong. But what's the goal of our lives? David's saying something here. He's saying, how are you spending your short life that you have? He says, God, make me realize that this isn't going to last forever. So what am I doing with this short life that you are giving me? Make me remember that. Make me remember that every day I can either glorify you or I can complain about you. Make me remember that even though I'm in the midst of trial right now and I'm under your heavy hand or it's a situation of adversity or something like that, this isn't going to last forever. I'm not going to last forever. And am I glorifying you in this short time that I have on earth or am I just complaining every day about what you've given me? That's what David says. He says, show me how short life is. He wants this resolved. And he wants it resolved because he knows life is short. He wants to get back to living his life, right? He wants to get out of the depression. He wants to get out of the darkness. He goes, I don't want to waste all my days in, in under your hand of discipline. I want this resolved. I don't want to spend every day that I have left with my face in the dirt. I want to live. Show me how short life is and let me get back to living it the right way, glorifying to you. Resolve this sin. Think for a minute. What would the majority of your days testify that you live for? And David wants his to count for sanctification, for holiness, for growth, for glorifying God. There's another big step that needs to happen before that can happen. Look at verse 7. He says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. What is David waiting for? What is he really looking for? 
He's looking to be delivered from his transgressions. He says, don't let me be mocked by fools. I know my sin. Please, Lord, let's resolve this. How do we resolve sin, church? One word, forgiveness. Second thing David is asking for in his prayer is this. God, forgive me of my sin. He says, remind me of how short life is. Second, forgive me of my sin. David's full hope is set on God doing what? Forgiving his sin. He wants to be delivered from the effects of this sin, and that can't happen until God forgives him. The Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision, puts it this way, O Lord God, without the pardon of my sin, I cannot rest satisfied. Did you guys catch that? Without the pardon of my sin, I can't rest. I can't be at peace. Without the renovation of my nature by grace, I can never rest easy. Without the hopes of heaven, I can never be at peace. All this I have in thy son Jesus. Blessed be his name. The Puritans reminding us of this very thing. God, we need you to forgive this sin or I will never have peace. And church, how often... Do we ask God for the pain to stop? And then that's it. Lord, just take away the pain. Just, just make this situation go away. Just snap your divine fingers and get me out of this. But then we don't deal with the sin that's in the mix. And David says we're not going to be at peace until we deal with the sin in the mix. And there's only one way to deal with the sin in the mix, and that's God forgiving the sin. The pain cannot stop until the sin is resolved. And it's only going to be resolved by God forgiving it. In the midst of the pain, like David, we have to do the hard work of going to God. We have to do the hard work of facing our sin. We have to do the hard work of conviction and confession with open Bible on our knees, asking God to forgive us. And you know what, church? He promises he will. He promises he will. We're faithful and just to forgive us. Right? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we know that he will? Because the tomb is empty. That's how we know he will. Because Jesus went and paid the price for sin on the cross. The tomb is empty. Our sins are actually already forgiven. We just have to call them sin. We have to align ourselves with righteousness. We have to confess and repent and move on. And secure what Christ won for us on that blood-soaked cross. That's how we know. Why would we not do that? Why would we not go and get what Christ has won for us? Why would we not seek that forgiveness? Then and only then, God can remove the effects of sin. We still may have consequences to deal with. I'm not saying he's going to do, you know, do away with the consequences. Sometimes our sins have consequences here on earth that can't be removed. But eternally, spiritually, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are justified. The sin has been resolved by the only one who can then the pain can be removed, though it may never go away entirely. We know that sometimes when we're sinned against or big things that have happened to us, right? They're big sins. They're big scars. They may not entirely be removed. Some of these things we're never going to forget. That whole nonsense about forgive and forget, it's, it's not biblical. The test for forgiveness is not whether or not you've forgotten it. Some of these things you are never going to forget, but that doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. That doesn't mean... That, that situation is not resolved by the blood of Jesus Christ and our risen Savior. And that does not mean that every day that goes by, God is not going to give you more grace and more grace 
It might become more and more of a distant memory. And God works through the common grace of time. We can be healed by grace, but all of that in God's timing. Look at verse 9. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, right? So we're still talking about the same thing here, still talking about sin. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth. What is dear to him? Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And David tells God that, look, I'm, I'm not fighting your hand on this, God. I get it. I'm not saying a word against you in complaint. You've, you've done this. He comes right out and says, this is you. You're the one who has crushed me, crushed me under the conviction of my sin. I get it. I deserve that. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But he does ask God to remove his stroke from him, right? His, his strike, his hand. Stop pummeling me with consequences and judgment. He is spent. He's exhausted from God's hand upon him. We clearly see in verse 11 that this, again, a direct result of David's sin. God will discipline his children for sin. That's why we read Hebrews. Because we remember that we are not illegitimate children. We are adopted sons and daughters, and God is going to discipline his children for sin because for our good and for our growth. That's a good thing. It's not good when we go through it. It's not happy when we go through it, but it's for our growth and for our good. Just like parents, we just don't let our kids do whatever they want. That's not very loving. We have to discipline them. We have to show them. We have to train them. We have to teach them. Just like God's a loving Heavenly Father. Why spend our days under conviction for sin and feeling the consequences of it? That's the third thing David is asking for. He says this, just God, remove the pain. He says, let me know how short my life is. Forgive me of my sin and, and remove the pain. Stop, stop, please stop the judgment. Stop the, the conviction. Again, we skip to step three a lot of the times, don't we? Right? We, we encounter pain and we're like, uh, God, I don't know if you know it or not, uh, but uh, I have a trial here and it's really bumming me out and I would like you to remove it just as soon as you possibly can. Right? He's well aware of that. I do it too. He's well aware of that. But look at where this is on the list. This is step three. Now David's talking about removing the pain. Sometimes we just say, God, I'm in pain. Make it stop. Make it go away. And he's up there going, I'm doing something here. I know. I know you're in pain. I allowed it for a reason, for your good, for your growth. You don't want me to stop working until the work is done. And church, just that, we, we try to short-circuit sometimes the work that God is doing in us by just begging to get out of the trial instead of just opening our arms and letting God do what he's doing. Letting God grow us. That's the point. Those are growth times. There's so much more growth in the darkness than there is in the light. Because why? In the light, the good times, everything's going good. We forget about God, right? But in the darkness, when we're under trial and adversity, every minute we are dependent on God. And he's there for us. He is faithful. And he's doing his best work. I think it was Spurgeon that said he does his best work in the dark. That's the point. Don't try and short circuit it, but that doesn't stop us from asking God to remove the pain. Right? 
first, instead of complaining about a situation in the ears of unbelievers, he goes to God. He pours out his heart. He asks God to show him how short his life is. He asks God to forgive his sin. And now he says, remove the pain. Please stop. David doesn't ask this first, but he asks it third. We are free to ask God anything, church. We are free to ask God to remove the pain, but in the right context. David's building a context here. David's in pain. He wants his relationship with God restored and the sin cleared, and he has two more requests of God in the final two verses here in our, in our chapter. Look at verse 12. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. And David first says, God, hear my prayer. Listen to me. I'm crying out to you. Please don't be silent at my tears. He says, I feel like a sojourner. I feel like a foreigner here. I feel like a stranger. I'm not, I don't feel like your son. Our relationship is interrupted. Listen to me. I feel like a guest, he says, like my fathers before me who betrayed you. I feel like I'm on the outs. And David's fourth request is this, quite simply, listen to me. God, listen to me. I think of a, a little kid, right? When they want your attention, they're going to make it very known that they want your attention, right? Mom, 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 right? And I get it. I understand. I'll be with you in one second, right? No, they, they understand. They, they, they want us to listen to them. You kind of have a little bit of that that childlike attitude here of David, calling on his heavenly father, listen to me, God, listen to me. I'm upset here. I'm crying. I, I'm, I'm literally weeping. Please don't ignore me. The scripture is full of places where the writers are asking God to incline your ear to me. Or hear us, O Lord. Or listen to us, O God. You can feel the desperation and the dependence. This is important to David. He's like, don't, don't ignore me. Please, I want the pain to stop. I want to be resolved. I want my sin forgiven. And David asked one more thing from God in his prayer. Look at verse 13. He says, look away from me, that I might smile again before I depart and am no more kind of strange that he's asking God to look away from him. You got to remember, what is God looking at him? It's kind of that Hebrew context as well. What is God's glance, God's gaze towards him is now in the form of what? Judgment. And he says, look away from me. Stop looking at me with judgment and discipline. Turn your attention to my joy, he says. Why? He says, so I might smile again. The last thing David asked for in his prayer is for God to restore my joy. He says, God, restore my joy. This is not unfamiliar to us. Many, again, give credence to the fact that this might be the Bathsheba affair. And he asks for something similar in Psalm 51, which we know is the prayer of repentance for Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Watch this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is a familiar request. David says, I don't want to be in the darkness anymore. 
I'm done with this. Restore my joy, he says. Church, this is something only God can do. The world can offer happiness. The world can offer distraction. But only God can offer joy. And he goes to God and he asks God. You ever think of that? We are free to ask God for joy. But look at where it is on the list. Last. He's gone through all of this. He's gone through this repentance. He's gone through this confession. He's gone through the darkness. He says, Remember, remind me of how short my life is compared to you. Forgive my sin. Take away the pain. He says, listen to me. And last, of course, not least, restore my joy. We are free to ask God to restore our joy. But again, look at the context in which he is doing it. And joy comes from our understanding of how short life is. It comes from that forgiveness that God gives us through Christ. From God removing the pain of sin and from God listening to us. And David demonstrates for us this morning how we are to act when the hand of conviction and the hand of trial for our sin or others is upon us. And let me see if I can pull this together this morning for us. David watches his mouth when he's surrounded by unbelievers. Again, he waits until he can get in the company of his God where he goes to him in prayer. So maybe I could say this. Call on your father instead of complaining to others. Call on your father instead of complaining to others. Now, I want to be careful here. This does not mean that we turn ourselves into isolation, right? And we, we need each other. When we're struggling, we need to let other people in on that. We need to tell our brothers and sisters. That's, that's why we have relationships and care groups and Bible studies and all of that stuff. We need to let each other in on that. I'm not saying you can't talk to other people when you're struggling. Please talk to other people when you're struggling. But watch your words. What are the words saying when you're talking to other people about how you're struggling? We all have that tendency to, to vent, to complain. And when we have those moments, we need to ask for forgiveness, and he will grant it to us. But church, call on your father instead of just complaining to others. This text is telling us this morning to make sure that our words are directed biblically. You see the way he's kind of progressed through these stages here? The, the, the structure of his prayer, the rawness of David's prayer life, he's not holding anything back in this prayer. Are our prayers like this? Do our prayers look more like Psalm 39? Or, or do they look like a list of things that we need God to do for us today? What do our prayers look like? When we're alone in our prayer closets, whatever that may be, do our prayers look like Psalm 39? Are we, are we consciously holding our tongues around unbelievers when we're in trial so that they don't get the wrong idea of our God? If our God is complete, if he's the complete provider, protector, creator, redeemer, sustainer, and then all we do is complain about our situation in life, what is that saying about our belief in God as the all-complete sovereign creator, protector, redeemer, sustainer? What is that saying about him? 
when we're in trial, especially in the discipline for any unresolved sin, we need to be reaching out to our brothers and sisters for help and support and wise biblical counsel. But hopefully they will point you back to a place like Psalm 39 where we progress and we say, God, remind me of the shortness of my life. I don't want to spend the days that I have that you have ordained for me under your hand of judgment and in the darkness. I want to be free of this and I want to glorify you. Asking him to show us how short our life is, what we need to be spending our time and priority on and growing in holiness, asking for forgiveness for our sin, asking him to remove the pain, asking him to listen to our prayers and to restore the joy to our souls. And as we do that, church, as we process this, this isn't neat and tidy. I hope you don't read the Psalms and think that everything's just neat and tidy. That's not the point of the Psalms. The point of the Psalms are messy. There's raw emotion, and that's how David is processing this, and that's how we should process it too. We have the privilege of calling on our Heavenly Father church, and we need to make regular use of that. And let's go to God right now in prayer. And thank him for this psalm and ask him to grow us in this way. Father, we thank you for your goodness that you have shown to us. Lord, you are so aware that we are finite creatures, that we do struggle, that we do sin, that we do experience your discipline and we hate it. We want to rail against your hands so many times. And Lord, we just want the pain to stop instead of allowing you to continue to do your work in our hearts. And I pray that you would cause us to be more faithful in our prayers. Father, we pray that we would watch our words when we are around others, especially those who don't know you. And we pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we grow more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his precious, holy name. Amen.